Our New Testament scripture passage is in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse, oh wow, chapter 6, starting at verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One Ancient Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time here, we're very glad um, that you're joining us. And right now, what we're doing is, is moving through a series on Matthew, and in particular, right now, we're in a sort of, of mini-series that's, that's taking us through the Sermon on the Mount. And before we, we turn to that passage that we're looking at today, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in particular, for what it tells us about our hearts and our seeking and your goodness. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for how it points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at these words, that your spirit would work in our hearts to see 
and to love and to embrace Christ more fully. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, in looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we have presented the, the Beatitudes, those nine statements that begin the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapter 5, those nine statements about blessed are those, flourishing are those, happy are those. We presented those as virtues, and these nine Beatitudes, these nine virtues, direct us to the good life, the human life of flourishing and happiness that God calls us to. And these virtues, these beatitudes, they're developed through practices. Earlier, we used the example of taste testers, if you remember, and through the practice over and over again of, of carefully tasting food for years, well, taste testers learn to discern, to identify, to appreciate fine cuisine more than any untrained palate. A, a taste tester can appreciate good food, can enjoy good food more than someone like myself ever could. The patient cultivation of the ability to taste well enables the greatest enjoyment of good food. Remember that when we talk about a virtue, what we're talking about is the ability, the ability to do something that the good life requires. And if the good life, the life of, of flourishing and happiness, actually rested in food, well, taste testers would be the one kind of person that would be able to receive true happiness. They alone would, would be able to fully enjoy it. But of course, while life is certainly not less than food, in this passage, Christ Jesus tells us that life is much more than food. All the same, Christ does use the imagery of food to describe what we should love, what we should desire, and what we should want. As one of the Beatitudes tells us, flourishing, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And what is the virtue? What is the ability here? Well, it's to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, to desire righteousness and to appreciate and to savor its taste when it's set before us. To, to, to use a, another quote we've used uh, from C.S. Lewis earlier, and I apologize, there's, there's going to be a lot of, of C.S. Lewis in this sermon, and, and that's because he is just such a great expositor of, of desire and of love. Uh, to use a quote that we've used before in this series, Lewis tells us, God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that there is not. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. Lewis is telling us that what God offers us is happiness. But since the human is a, cre is a creature made by God, God offers us the only kind of happiness that can make the human creature happy. The goal of the Christian life, then, is to learn how to hunger, how to thirst for this one particular food, this one particular happiness that actually makes the human happy. Either we will eat it and enjoy it gladly, or we will starve forever. 
Either we will find our ultimate happiness in God, or we will restlessly long for a happiness that will ever and always escape us. Lewis is telling us that these are the only two human options. A fish, a fish is not meant to breathe on land, and a fox is not meant to breathe in water. Likewise, for us, food or physical intimacy or career or beauty or physical health or financial resources, they were never meant to be our ultimate source of happiness. But here we are. We are like fish that stubbornly insist upon breathing on land or like a fox that refuses to inhale anything but water. A fish is not made for life on land, and a fox is not made for life in the water. And is it too much to suggest that there are forms of life that we humans are not meant to live? That there are choices that go against the kinds of creatures that we actually are? That our happiness rests here and not there? A fox that breathes in the water... It may love the water, but it loves the water wrongly. The fox should love water. It needs to drink water. But water is not meant to be the life of the fox. It's not a fish. It should love the water, but if it loves the water most of all, if it makes the water its life, well, the fox will suffocate. It will destroy itself. It will drown. Does this have any parallel to the human life? I believe that all of us, deep down, believe that it does. We all desire happiness. We all seek happiness. And to seek happiness is to believe that there is such a thing as happiness. But think about it. It's actually a pretty presumptuous thing to believe that there is such a thing as human happiness. It takes a lot of faith to believe that we can be happy. If the only reason we're here is by accident, if there is no God, if this world is not a hospitable home in any deep sense, why should we believe that happiness exists? If we're here by accident in an accidental world, what we should actually expect is to be unhappy. Only if we were made for this world and this world was made for us and our God lovingly placed us in it, only then should we expect to be happy. In fact, as as one psychologist writes from a perspective that understands happiness in, in merely and only evolutionary terms, the psychologist writes, it's good to know that feeling bad isn't actually bad. It's exactly what survival of the fittest intended. If satisfaction and pleasure were permanent, there might be little incentive to continue seeking further benefits or advances. Yes, if we're only here because of the strong eating the weak, there's no reason to suspect suspect that happiness is a real thing. Being happy will only make you let your guard down and be eaten by some other unhappy creature who thinks that eating you will make it happy. But if there is a God, and God made us, well, happiness is exactly what we should expect. 
And if God made us just as he made the fish and the fox, well, then we shouldn't be surprised that happiness is one thing and not another. We, like the fox, must love water, but not so much that we drown ourselves. And so the point here is not just that our ultimate happiness rests in God. It's also that only God makes sense of a world in which we expect and seek happiness. To again quote Lewis, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire in which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I can't help longing and seeking happiness in a world where happiness really doesn't make any sense, perhaps I need to ask myself if I need to enter into a new world, a world created, sustained, redeemed, and perfected by the very God who is our happiness. And this brings us to our present passage. Again, Christ begins the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and in one of the Beatitudes, he tells us, flourishing, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To be directed to flourishing, to happiness, to the good life that God calls us to, we must hunger and thirst for righteousness, that one food that alone will nourish the deepest desires of our soul. And here in this passage, Christ provides practices for growing, for cultivating this virtue, this quality, this ability to hunger and to thirst for this one thing. And Christ begins this passage by actually speaking about our relation to food. He addresses the spiritual discipline of fasting. And fasting is, is many things. And in fasting, we sincerely and earnestly come before God our fasting often accompanies prayer, especially fervent prayer. And as a spiritual discipline, fasting helps to order our loves and desires. And we must keep something important in mind here. To fast is not to call food bad. Food is good. When we fast, we give up for a time some lesser good so that we might more fully desire the greatest good of God. Fasting does not reject, but assumes the goodness of food. And this hits at the basic notion, the basic Christian notion of sin. When we sin, we do not desire bad things. We don't love bad things. What we do is love good things badly. Sin is not loving an evil thing. All of creation is good, and God has created no bad thing. Instead, sin is loving some good thing in creation more than its creator. Sin is the symptom, it's the effect of disordered loves. It's good to love your job, for example. Your job is a good gift from God, but when you love it too much, when you love it more than relationships, when you love it more than God himself, 
then you will sacrifice your family and your friendships and even your God on the altar of career. Yes, love your job, but love the greater gifts of God and neighbor more. Again, a fox should love water, but if it loves water too much, it will drown. So too will the human who tries to make their career their very breath. We find the same dynamic with the good gift of food. Love it, receive it gladly and gratefully as a good gift from God, but don't rest your heart in it. Fasting helps us rightly order our desires to love the greater goods more than the lesser goods. And Christ here frames the issue of fasting in terms of rewards. We ask, why does Christ do this? Perhaps as, as Presbyterians, maybe talk of rewards makes us a little uncomfortable. Maybe it sounds a little bit like works righteousness. What is going on here? Well, once again, C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here. Lewis speaks of the importance of having a natural connection between a reward and the way that a reward is pursued. Lewis gives the example of a general, a general who leads his troops simply for the sake of advancing through the military rank, simply for the sake of getting a higher position. And Lewis says such a general, well, he's a mercenary, but not so the general who first and foremost fights in order to achieve victory. Because victory is the proper reward of battle, a higher position is not. As Lewis explains, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. Victory naturally flows from a successful battle in a way that rising through the ranks, getting a higher position, does not. A promotion is simply something that's tacked on to the battle. And so Lewis urges us to apply that to the Christian life, to see that the Christian life is one in which the ultimate reward flows from each and every step along the way. Lewis says, those who have attained everlasting life in the vision of God doubtless know very well that this is no mere bribe but the very consummation of their earthly discipleship. Christian practices, spiritual disciplines, discipleship, they all ultimately have the goal of loving, of knowing, of communing with our great and gracious God. This is their natural destination. This is the reward that they naturally lead to. We don't engage and do these things so that God can be tacked on after the fact. God is their very goal. But Christ warns us that spiritual disciplines, that spiritual practices can be used in a mercenary way. Christ says the following about fasting. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Why have the hypocrites refrained from food? 
so that they can be recognized for doing so. They want to move up the ranks. They want to get a higher position like the general who seeks the reward of promotion. There's no natural connection between fasting and and human approval. But since the hypocrites fast in order to get the acclaim of the crowd, well, once they receive it, they have their reward. But Christ warns us, since this reward is not the proper aim, not the proper goal of fasting, it actually stops fasting from doing what it's supposed to do in our hearts. Christ tells us, But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We mentioned last week that doing something in secret is a true test of your loves. If you pray in secret, the only reason to do so regularly would be because you long for fellowship with God and you believe that God is actually active in the world. If you don't desire this, if you don't believe this, well, you're not going to pray in secret. Similarly, if we fast as a spiritual discipline in secret, the only reason we would do so is because we want to love God more. Fasting as a spiritual discipline is refraining from some good gift in creation to better desire the greatest good of God. And Christ tells us that there is a reward here. And it's a reward that is natural, unlike the approval of the crowd. And what is this natural reward that flows from fasting? Well, it's, it's God. Again, Lewis tells us that enjoying God is the very consummation of earthly discipleship. Just as the natural reward of fighting is victory, so the natural reward of fasting is God. And so properly speaking, fasting is not about changing God. Fasting is about changing us, about changing our hearts. And the reward Well, it's a deeper love of God. And because we love him more, we receive God more fully. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas is is very helpful here. Aquinas compares us to, to buckets. And he says, God is like a rushing river. God gives all of himself to us in Christ. But we can only receive God according to the size of our buckets. The bigger our buckets, the more of God we receive and the more of God we enjoy. And so here we have the whole purpose of the human life boiled down to one image. What are we meant to do in this life? Make our buckets bigger. But why is it that our buckets remain so small? Well, it's because we don't desire God as we should But fasting helps us to make our desires bigger. It helps us to desire more fully the sweet and cool water that alone can quench the thirst of our parched soul. And again, to turn to Lewis, he he puts it perfectly. You've probably heard this quote before. He says, 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. And this is what fasting is ultimately about. It's not the squashing of our desires. It's not meant to make us, <clears throat> sorry, it's not meant to make us hate food. That would be to reject the goodness of creation. Fasting by stripping away for a time the good gift of food or some other good gift, it enables us to focus on and to long for God himself. Fasting is not about shrinking our desires, but making them bigger. It's learning to want and to desire and love more, to hunger and thirst for God himself. It's not about making our bucket smaller, but making it bigger so that we might more fully enjoy God. And this is the natural reward of fasting. Do you want to long more for God? Well, Christ invites you to the discipline of fasting. And it's interesting because here Christ simply assumes that all who follow God will be fasting. He doesn't say if you fast, he says when you fast. And Christ tells us that when we do what we surely will do, fast, we have to do it in the right way, which is in secret. But Christ goes deeper here. He goes to our very hearts. He continues, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is... There your heart will be also. So Christ invites us to ask, where is your treasure? And it might not be what you think it is. And what are ways that we can find out? Well, there's, there's a number of ways, but I, I do want to suggest one. I encourage you to sit down with a spouse or a friend and actually go over your most recent bank or credit card statement. What are you spending your money on? I don't mean to be crass, but where our money goes, there our hearts are also. Think over this with someone else and ask yourself, is some good thing becoming an idol? Pray about this and perhaps consider fasting for a while from this very thing in order to lessen its grip upon your heart. And remember, Christ here warns us that if our hearts rest on anything else but God, our hearts will be broken. And the ancient African bishop Augustine is, is helpful here. He tells us not only will God alone fulfill the deepest desires of our heart, but he makes another important point. He tells us that true happiness requires that what is received can never be lost. If we could lose what makes us happy, well, the fear of losing it would never actually allow us to be happy. We could never rest. We could never feel secure in that happiness. A few months back, someone told me about an ad they had seen about a, a fitness guru who was saying something like this. My whole program is based on one core question. 
What if you made your physical health the most important priority in your life? And to that, I would respond, yes, eating healthy and exercising, that's an important way to steward the good gifts of our body. But this commitment will absolutely break your heart. Your physical health will fade. Your body will age and break down and die. If physical health is your greatest love, you are setting yourself up for deep, deep, deep sorrow and deep, deep grief. Bodies decay, health fades, careers end, families struggle, and we all die. Nothing in this world is free from being lost. In fact, we absolutely will lose it all. If what we can see is all there is, then death is just the loss of anything that could possibly make us happy. It's even the loss of ourselves. And if Augustine is right that happiness requires a good that cannot be lost, then happiness just isn't possible if all there is is what we can see. But again, if I find myself, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If my heart cannot help but be broken by a world that begins in cosmic accident and ends in death, perhaps my heart is meant for another world. A world in which death and decay, moth and rust, these are not the last words. Perhaps my heart is meant for a better, a richer, a fuller world. The world that Christ directs us to. Christ tells us to set our heart, to set our deepest desires upon heaven, to set our deepest desires on God and long for the day that heaven will come down to earth, a world with no corruption or death or evil, a world in which we will fellowship with God in a manner closer than we now fellowship with our dearest friend. Every day, will either bring you closer to your ultimate joy or every day will take the joy more fully from you. One day closer to retirement, one day closer to physical ailment, one day closer to the death of everyone we know and love and even ourselves. Whatever our treasure is, whatever we seek most, we come to be at the mercy of that thing. And so that thing becomes our master. And when this life takes away that treasure, then the loss of this treasure will destroy you. Few people have, have put this better than the novelist David Foster Wallace in his, his well-known graduation speech. This is water. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid a fraud, 
always on the verge of being found out. These things become our masters, and they are not merciful masters. They give us a world of competition and strife because there's always someone with more money, more physical attraction, more resources, a nicer house, a better resume, more friends, more acclaim, more of whatever thing you most want. Not only is this a life of continual and incessant competition, but you will always and eventually lose the competition. And this is a dark, dark world. As Christ tells us, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? When your treasure, when your heart rests here upon earth, the world we live in is a dark one. The other is not seen as a neighbor to be loved, but as a competitor to be beat and bested. If our hearts rest on the lesser goods that cannot fulfill us and will absolutely be taken away, our world becomes a very dark world of competition and strife. Ask yourself, who is it that you struggle most to love? Very likely, it's people who are winning the competition for that particular thing that you yourself most want. Do you find it difficult to love people who are doing better in your career field than you? Do you find it difficult to love people who drew twice the crowd than you did at the last conference presentation? Do you find it difficult to love people who have the kind of romantic relationship that you desire? Do you find it difficult to love people who have the house or the resources you want? Do you find it difficult to love people whose children are succeeding in all the ways you hope your children would succeed? If so, the darkness in our hearts have looked upon this person and not seen a neighbor but a competitor. And if this is so, please recognize this as an alarm, an alarm that your heart is set upon something that will break it. And if this is so, then turn to Christ. And let Christ teach you not just to sorrow with those who sorrow, but also to do the much more difficult task of rejoicing with those who rejoice. Because this kind of rejoicing might just be the hardest lesson of all. Learn to truly rejoice when your colleague publishes a seminal paper, when your friend marries a truly wonderful spouse, when another parent and their children succeed in a truly miraculous way. And this kind of rejoicing, it sheds a much-needed light on a dark world of strife and competition. And when you rejoice like this, you show that not career, nor romance, nor your children's success, nor a million other lesser goods are your true master. No, you show that Christ Jesus, that he himself is your true master, and unlike all of these other masters, he is merciful. 
Christ turns us away from competition, strife, and scarcity as the basic reality of the human life. And because of everything that Christ has just told us about our hearts and desires, because of all of this, Christ begins the next section of the sermon with, therefore, therefore, as in, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And we'll look at this portion of, of the Sermon on the Mount next week too, but we have to include it in today's passage because of this therefore. Because of all that Christ has just told us about our hearts, about what we desire, because of all of that, therefore, therefore, we should not be anxious. Christ tells us not to be anxious for the good gifts of creation that we need. Christ tells us to look at the birds, how they neither reap nor sow. Christ tells us to look at the lilies of the field whose leaves and petals are dressed more splendidly than King Solomon himself. Christ directs us here to creation. And Christ reminds us that we are creation. The birds receive their food as a gift. The flowers receive their beautiful displays as a gift. And we too, as part of creation, we receive everything. We receive everything from the gracious hand of God as a gift. And there's a lot here, and again, we'll turn to this passage next week too. But for today, note how Christ explains that this too is a matter of desiring, of seeking, of loving. Speaking of the lesser loves that were, ten that were tempted to make our treasure and our master, Christ tells us, Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek God above everything else. This sounds simplistic, but it's not. And to be sure, there are a range of social and economic issues at play here, and Scripture addresses all of these at one point or another. The last thing a Christian should ever do is blame financial troubles on someone's lack of faith or a failure to trust in God. Many strong Christians who struggle with poverty have a deep faith far beyond the comfortable Christian. If you ever think that Scripture is giving a simplistic answer to a complex question, I, I, I encourage you, please, read the book of Job. But here, Christ tells us that most fundamentally, our sense of anxiety, our sense of scarcity is a problem of our heart. We rest our heart on things that cannot fulfill our deepest desires, cannot bring us complete happiness, and those things will absolutely be taken from us. We're like shipwrecked sailors who try to quench their thirst with salt water, drinking ever more deeply and becoming ever more thirsty for that which is killing us. And so we have to make sure that what we most seek in love and desire can fulfill us and that it can never be taken from us. That it won't ultimately destroy us and break our hearts. We must make sure that what we most seek is God himself. But even this is not the whole story. Our seeking of God is ultimately God's seeking of us. 
Yes, we find God, but only after God has found us. God is the golden treasure who seeks out the poor. God is the sumptuous feast who seeks out the hungry. God is the most precious medicine who seeks out the sick. God is the great joy and gladness that seeks out the sorrowful. And the reason we can seek God is because he has first sought us. And God has done so in Jesus Christ. In Christ, God comes to seek us, to save us. And how so? Well, God is the greatest master of all, the great master who seeks us as a servant. Recall these two words of Christ. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. It's interesting that the same Greek word here is used to describe the intentional disfiguring of the hypocrites' faces and the destruction of the earthly treasures. We have here a fake disfiguring and the destruction of the earthly. This is the way of the false masters that we seek. We are manipulated by those who desire power, and the things we seek to hold on to, they, they fall apart in our hands. But this is not the way of the true master, the one who seeks us as a servant. He was not falsely disfigured, but truly disfigured for us upon the cross. Stripped and beaten, whipped and ridiculed, stretched and shamed, pierced with nails, torn with spear. And this disfigurement, unlike the manipulative disfigurement of the hypocrites, it didn't receive our approval, but our anger, our hatred, our rage. By our hands, Christ suffered the death that we deserved. He was disfigured for our transgressions. And in Christ, we don't find the destruction of earthly treasures, but the destruction of the heavenly treasure itself. The destruction of God become human. This is not the master who breaks our hearts, but the master who is broken for the sake of our hearts. The master who takes the destruction that all these false masters lead to, the destruction that we as their servants deserve. Christ is the God truly disfigured for us not to manipulate us, but to seek out and to save us. Christ is the heavenly treasure destroyed for our sake, not to steal our hearts, but to take our hearts and lay them in the hands, the soft hands of our great and gracious Father, where they can never be broken. Christ has sought and desired and loved and wanted you, and that's why he has done this. And so, Christian, take encouragement. You are loved more than you can ever know. Christ has sought you because he loves you, and he has given everything for you. And we, by faith, are called to receive this seeking, to receive and love this merciful master who alone can give us happiness. Happiness now in part, but happiness one day in full, when Christ comes once more to seek us. We are his 
great earthly treasure. And on that day, we will no longer suffer either moth or rust, either theft or thievery. There will be no destruction of any kind. Seek and love and desire the one who has sought and loved and desired you. Seek because you have been found. Flourishing, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have first sought and found us, that we may seek and find you. Lord, forgive us for our weak desires. Strengthen them, strengthen them and grow them that we might desire most of all you yourself to love you, to know you, to commune with you. And thanks for making all of this possible in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.